Father, thank you for your kindness to us and your son. Thank you for the good word that we've heard this morning from Deborah and in the reading of scripture and in the singing of song. It's, it's good to be in your house, Lord. And thank you for those who are here today. I pray that you'll help the teacher to be clear. And for those who are here um, to listen, to understand. And, and again, Lord, we know that if any of that happens, it's because of your kindness and your grace. Father, today we're talking about you and who you are. And that's, Lord, a, a very humbling thing to do. So I pray that we'll do so with modesty and with hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, good, good morning. <clears throat> I'm going to make a tie. I'm going to introduce us. This We're, we're in a three-part series on the Trinity and, and the Bible. You're in the danger zone this morning, Menendez. Especially as um, as that relates to um, Advent. Uh, so we, we started last week, and it's really is a hodgepodge series. Um, you know, so I'll, you'll have to forgive the the uh, maybe the inchoate character of it. But um, I, I did want to start by giving you a, a reading recommendation. I don't know how many of you. Um, I this is a strange thing. I, I don't know how your your reading goes or your reading life. Um, I, I actually tend to save particular books for times of the year. Um, you know, for example, um, I, I've not read much Dickens at all, I'm embarrassed to say. And everyone and their mother has told me, well, if you're going to read Dickens, um, you know, read Bleak House, right? So I've got Bleak House, and I had Bleak House in the summer, but I just felt like that's not really a summer read. I had to wait till the winter, so I've started it now. Um, here's another read that might not be a winter read, actually might be a spring read, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it f- before you. And it's Marilyn Robinson's newest novel um, entitled Lila. Um, I, I, have any of you fiddled with Mar- I think we have some of her books in our bookstore. Anybody, you, you've read some Robinson? She's a fascinating lady. Um, she teaches at the, at the Center for, for Writing um, at the University of Iowa, which is one of the premier writing centers in, in the country. Um, f- I mean, names of Flannery O'Connor. I mean, this is a, it's a premier place. Um, she's from the West, so she's not kind of from the Northeast, liter- you know, literary culture. Um, but she's a fascinating Christian woman who brings a lot of Christian themes naturally in a in, in a in a non-cheesy way i guess is the way to say that um she brings it sort of naturally into her into her writing she wrote a book some 30 years ago i guess entitled housekeeping that brought her sort of national notoriety and then it took her 20 years before she wrote another um and that was the book gilead which won the pulitzer that might be the one that many of you are familiar with um, so this book won the Pulitzer Prize. Someone asked her in an interview, why so long between the first and the second novel? And, and her answer was, um, because I had things I needed to learn. So what a great answer, right? I had things I needed to learn. Um, so she wrote Gilead, and that's a story about a minister named John Ames who lives, who ministers in a small town called Gil- in Gilead, Iowa. It's a made-up town, but it's really every town. I had a brother-in-law and sister-in-law that lived in Iowa for five years, and every town is Gilead in Iowa, at least in my opinion. Um, I'm a southern person. I, when I get into the Midwest, I begin to get buggy for trees, and that's very much how it is there. Um, so this is Gilead, Iowa, 
and he's a minister. We're never really told the kind of church that he's in. It's either a Congregationalist church or or an Episcopalian church. There's candles around is one of the reasons why, because we put some of that together. Um, and one of his best friends is a minister named John Bowden, uh, who's the Presbyterian minister in town. And Well, what Gilead is all about John Ames writing letters to his young son because he's about to die. He's an older man. And it's one of those strange... You begin to sort of put the pieces together slowly. She, she's subtle. If you know the old writing um, maxim, t- uh, show, don't tell. Right, That's a, a famous line for creative writing. Don't, don't tell people about it. Show them. Um, it, she, Robinson is brilliant at showing. You've got to put some things together. And you realize, well, how does this old man have a seven-year-old son? I mean, we're talking like 75. Like, what's the deal here? Well, he marries a second time. His, wife, his first wife and child have died. He marries a second time. And the woman that he marries is, a, is really a woman sort of that just came off the street um, named Lila. Right. So the first book is about John Ames writing letters to his son filled with rich and robust theology. And the second, the second or the third novel, she wrote a middle one called Home as well, which is about Jack Bolton's son. But the third one is Lila, and this is the story of... Um, of John Ames's wife, and it's fascinating. I mean, if you're, if you, um, I, I was quite taken with it, and one of the reasons why I was taken with it is because it's really an extended allegorical read or figural read through the nar- narrative of Lila's own personal story of Ezekiel 16, and she says that. I mean, Lila finds a Bible. She steals a Bible from the church. She's living out in a shack. Um, and uh, and she's, she's reading the Bible. And you think about people who newly come to faith in Christ. Um, she's a reluctant convert, reluctantly gets baptized, wants to wash her baptism off, ask her husband, can I wash this thing off of me? And he's like, sorry, once it's on, it's on. Um, and so it's a fact. But you think about people who are newly into the faith. Where do they normally go? In the, their Bible reading, John's Gospel, Mark, maybe toss them some Philippians, Genesis, something like that. Not Lila. Lila's in Ezekiel, and the whole novel has these various references, not always identified, but references to the book of Ezekiel, and it pops up again and again. I love it. I mean, it's just fascinating. And uh, you know the story in Ezekiel 16, right? It's um, it's not a Hallmark Channel kind of. Got a lot of Hallmark Channel movies on in my home. These days, I'm not happy about that. My wife's not here, but I'll go ahead and say it. I'm not happy about all these movies on. But this is not a Hallmark story, right? Ezekiel 16, um, for those of you familiar with the text, it's a long chapter. It's about a baby that's been abandoned by its parents out in the middle of the wilderness. Canaanite parents and Hittite parents kicking and screaming in the baby's own afterbirth and then... Um, the Lord Himself comes by in the wilderness and sees this baby flailing in its own afterbirth. And the Lord says, live. And then the next verse says, and I said to you again, live. And so this act of infanticide, this is the story of Israel's election, this act of infanticide is in and of itself indicative of what election is all about. You are a kicking, screaming flailing baby in the middle of the Middle Eastern desert that had been left out for the elements to take care of the matters that the parents themselves weren't willing to do. But I came by and I saw you in that state, not because you were lovely, but actually because you were in desperate need. 
and I set my affections on you and I told you to live. And then this girl that's been found in the middle of the desert grows up and she becomes um, ready for marriage. And then the Lord passes by a second time and He says, and now I'm going to make you my wife. And He dotes on her. It's, it's beautiful. That's the first 14, 15 verses of Ezekiel 16. But then when you get into the heart of the chapter, which is where Ezekiel the prophet is going, then everything goes to hell. She becomes a prostitute. She leaves her husband. It's one of the favorite images that the prophets use. It's, a, it's a, an image that's close to home. And that is about marriage and faithfulness in marriage. And Israel, uh, the wife that had been found in the desert, is now living a promiscuous life and and one of the, I think one of the most haunting phrases in all the Bible, the prophet Ezekiel says, and when Sodom and Gomorrah look at you, they blush when they see the kind of things that you're doing. And, and that's Lila's favorite chapter of the Bible, right? Um, because that she sees in that story herself. You know, I was, I was flailing and someone... So the whole book, if you're looking for a nice... A Christmas read. I don't know if you have the time to do it or not, but 250 pages of beautiful prose. Um, but wet, for, for those of us who come to it from a Christian worldview, wed to a really thick and deep reading of the Old Testament and especially Ezekiel 16 as that's narrated through Lila's life. So I, I commend it to you wholeheartedly um, if you're looking for Christmas gifts or something to read. There is a connection to our... Even if I'm straining, there is a connection. I didn't want to say that. There's a connection to this notion of the Trinity. Why? Because in Ezekiel 16, when we see the Lord moving toward His people, what we begin to see, or not begin to see, but what we see at least in illustrative form is that God's very eternal identity, who God is from eternity past, which, by the way is a very strange thing way to even articulate eternity, isn't it? Now, we're about to jump into the deep end of the pool, so life jacket's on. Um, but when we begin to start talking about time, we do realize, don't we, that time itself is a created um, reality. God creates time, day one, day two, day three, day seven, and then builds this cyclical pattern that God, by an act of His own kindness and self-determination, um, enters into the vortex of that temporal world that He Himself has made to redeem us. I'll come back to that. But God Himself is not bound by the durative character of our time. Um, if you think about the ways in which uh, Christian theologians, at least in the classic period of Christian theology, pre-modernity, understood God in relationship to time, the answer was eternity to God is an everlasting present. All, I mean, this, I mean, you think about how this relates to foreknowledge and election. It's, it's all related. But God Himself is an everlasting present. I mean, you think about the ways in which you and I live. You and I live in the warp and woof and the, and really the tyrannical movement of time, right? I mean, one of the lasting memories that I have with my, I think my final breakfast with Frank Limehouse before he left. And Frank was especially reflective during that time. Um, so it was a good time to be around him. And I remember Frank saying, Gentlelette, do you ever remember? Can you hear him? do you remember that um, soap opera, Days of Our Lives? And I was like, well, not really. <laughs> um, um, but I know what you're talking about. He said, you know the hourglass? And you turn the hourglass over, and, and, I, and the hourglass just seems to keep going, and nothing changes on the top. But at some moment in time, the, the sand starts to dip. 
And then you realize that there's more sand in the bottom than there is in the top. And Frank was like, well, that's me. I'm like, well, gosh, pass me a napkin. I mean, this is getting, you know, this is heavy. Um, but that, but do you feel that? Do you feel the tyranny of time? Um, and the fact that time moves on at a pretty standard clip and rate. And yet we're locked into that. And our experience of time begins to morph and change as we age. I mean, and you, we all know this. It just experientially, we know it. You know, the, the, the thinking about this as a third grader, sixth grade seems so far off, right? Or as a sixth grader, I can't believe that in several, three more years, I'll be in junior high school or middle, you know, and it just seems like forever. And it is forever from that time. But boy, when you move on in time, then it's as if the gears with time begin to shift from second into third into fourth and, I mean, we look at our children, and you know the same thing. I mean, we look at our kids, and I just don't know what's happened. I mean, something just happened. But we live in that movement, that linear movement. We're caught in the tyranny of time, where God Himself is not bound by that tyranny. He is an everlasting present. You and I live between the realities of the past and the future. That's where we live. Um, I'm, I'm going to say a word um, uh, uh, I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, pomegranate in, in a few seconds. Pomegranate. Now it's past. Is, is it, I'm telling you something in the future and then, it ha- and then it's past. We, li- we don't really know what the present is because we're really moving between the past and the future. Whereas for God, God is an everlasting present. For Him, all things are in Him and He views it all as if it's from the standpoint of His eternal presence. So God in His pre-temporal and eternal identity, self-sustained unto Himself, with no need of anything outside of Himself to make Himself more complete than He already was from eternity past. God did not sit in eternity past and say, I think I'd like to create a world and humanity because I'm lonely and I need someone to fellowship with. God had an eternal fellowship within Himself that was full, complete, and really um, simple in the sense that it could not be added to or detracted from. That is our God. So it's out of His kindness and out of His love, it's out of that three-dimensional reality of God the Father in the Son and by the Spirit in an eternal communion of love that God determines in pre-temporal eternity that He's going to be a God for humanity. Not because anything outside of Himself constrains that, but because He decides within Himself we are going to be a God for humanity and for the world. And creation emanates from that. And God's goodness emanates from that. The overflow of His love. So that when we see God passing by Israel, flailing and kicking in its own afterbirth, what we see is our God acting according to His own predetermined identity from eternity past. That's our God working out the ways in which our God determined Himself to be. I'm a God who creates, and I'm a God who redeems. I redeem my people and I'm a creator. It's quite profound, actually. So when we come to a season like Advent, as we enter into the beginning of our calendrical year together, again as the church, a new beginning together, what we see before us, I think in beautiful and profound ways that demand continued attention year after year after year, is that our God, sufficient unto Himself, in need of nothing outside of Himself, 
by sheer act of grace, passes by the world and passes by humanity and by the power of His Word and His Spirit, He says to those things, live, and they do. That's our God's character. He takes things that are dead and He makes them alive again. So what I want us to see today is the insoluble link between God's eternal identity and God's determination within that identity to be a God for you and for me. Our salvation is linked to God's eternal identity in a triune communion of love. And there are places in the Old Testament that whisper this to us. Um, And that's the way really in which I think about more and more, I think, the ways in which the Old Testament's own Trinitarian voice comes through, like whispers uh, that come from beyond to say, hey, you, uh, heads up, because in time, I'm going to reveal myself in a baby in a manger who's going to grow up and then die and then be raised from the dead, and you are going to know that that particular figure was not just a man, but actually God Himself incarnate, fully God, fully man. You're going to know in time the fullness of my eternal triune identity. You'll have to wait for it in full, but there are those whispers in the Old Testament that that whisper to us from beyond to say, hey, heads up, these are lightning flashes to let you know what will be fully revealed in time in the person and work of of my son. And I want to look at two texts with you this morning, and then we'll see where we go from there. I'm conscious of our... Is that right? It's Lila's fault that we're... All right, um, uh, Jeremiah chapter 23, if you have iPhones or Bibles around, I'll read this to you. Two texts that I want to look at, Jeremiah 23 and then Isaiah 53. Woe to the shepherds, says Jeremiah, who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Great ordination text, by the way. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my flock, you have scattered my flock, you've driven them away, you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil doings, says the Lord. That's a classic prophetic turn of phrase right there. You have scattered, I'm going to scatter. Uh, Micah chapter 2. You've, you have devised evil plans. I'm going to devise some evil plans. That's the way in which God does his repartee back and forth when he's bringing his judgment. He says, Then I'm going to gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them. I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I'll set shepherds over them who are going to care for them. Under shepherds. Under the chief shepherd who would come, who would care for them. And I will set, uh, and they shall no more fear, nor be dismayed, neither shall any, any be missing, says the Lord. And by the way, all of this is certainly background material for the, for the, um, the parables that Jesus tells about the lost sheep in, in, in Luke chapter 15. Not one of them will be lost here. All the flock that's been scattered abroad in the, in the grand diaspora of Israel's history, they're going to all be gathered back together and not one of them will go missing. And if one of them is missing, the Good Shepherd will go out and find that one uh, even to his own, uh, to his own uh, danger. So behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he'll execute justice and righteousness in the land. Okay, so here's the promise. There's a day coming. It's not now. It's a future time. Um, which is, frankly, the, 
the posture that most of the Bible takes toward us in our current moment. This is not necessarily the fullness of the time. You're in a waiting pattern. Even now, as Christians on the far side of the Incarnation, we live in the reality of a waiting pattern. The Kingdom of God has been inaugurated in the coming of Jesus. The Church of Jesus Christ continues that in its mission and its work, but the day is coming when that Kingdom will be consummated. Inauguration, continuation, consummation. But that's not occurred yet. We're in a waiting pattern still, a hopeful pattern. And here Jeremiah the prophet says, the king that you have on your throne, whose name at this time happened to be Zedekiah. I want you to sort of tuck that away. Zedekiah, which is a play on words. It's Zedek, which is righteousness in Hebrew, and the diminutive form of the tetragrammaton Yahweh at the end. So uh, the Lord, our righteousness, or the righteousness of the Lord, really. Zedek Adonai, Zedek Yah, Zedekiah. He's not a good king. He's a bad king. A king under whom the exile of God's people come because they would not follow in the ways of the Lord. And Jeremiah promises, but a time is coming when the offspring of David will come. And when he comes, he's going to deal righteously and equitously. He'll bring justice and peace into the land. And now, and this is a verse, frankly, that there's nothing like it in the Old Testament. In his day, verse 6, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which He will be called. And the English there is, The Lord is our righteousness. Um, The Hebrew there is very simply, The full name Jehovah, Yahweh, uh, Zedekinu. If if any of you have done studies of the name of God, you've probably seen this one. Yahweh Zedekinu. The Lord, our righteousness. And it's a fun play here. Jeremiah is brilliant at this. He does it in chapter 1. He does it all throughout his prophecy. He's playing on words. This one is going to be called the Lord, Yahweh, our righteousness. What's the name of the current king? Zedekiah, right? The righteousness of the Lord. The coming one will be the Lord, our righteousness. It's an inversion of the name of Zedekiah. But the fool Tetragrammaton, the full four Hebrew letters that we refer to as Jehovah in most of our translations, that one, that's the name that he will be predicated with in time. This is so off-putting that within the rabbinic tradition and certain scribal traditions of the Bible, they fiddle with this, right? offer an alternative reading because it's offensive to think about a coming human figure who will be predicated with the actual full personal name of God. Now, keep that before you. His name will be Yahweh, our righteousness, the Lord, our righteousness. I'm going to skip the other text, Isaiah 53, but go right to John. All right, so if you have those Bibles or iPhones, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made, and Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is John is giving us a thick, deep reading of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning. In Arche. The Greek translation of the Old Testament in Hebrew is called the Septuagint. 
And you know how the Genesis 1, 1 begins? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Septuagint translation of that, uh, Genesis 1, 1, begins in Arche, in the beginning. And that's how John 1, 1 begins, in Arche, in the beginning. It's an intentional intertextual play that John is making here to say, you've read the Genesis account before, but I want to tell you what the Genesis account is really all about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is What are the agents by which God creates, God the Father creates in Genesis chapter 1? His Word, He speaks, and what was that thing that came down and hovered over the waters? His Spirit. So it's His Word and His Spirit that are the agents by which God brings the world into order. And here John is really telling us as readers to put our seatbelts on because we're about to find out that that Word agent that was used to create the world, the means by which God the Father created the world, is none other than this Jesus of Nazareth. Is none other than this human figure, the son of a carpenter who made benches and tables. And when people saw him walking down the street and began to see him do miracles and power and speak with such authority, they said, isn't that Joseph's son? How could that be that he's speaking with this kind of authority? Because John chapter 1 is pulling the curtain back for us and letting us step really into very sacred and holy ground. We're stepping into pre-temporal eternity and what we are seeing is that God the Father and the Son and the Spirit were together working for the sake of creation and redemption from time past. Jesus of Nazareth is not an afterthought in the life of God, but is actually constitutive of the eternal life of God Himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There can be no higher claim to the full divinity of Jesus of Nazareth than John chapter 1. It's full, it's complete, and it's robust. And you look at this in John chapter 1, verse 14, and move on, and it says, And the Word, that is the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word became flesh. That boy, I mean, tones have been written on this verse. Why? Because the Word, the second person of the Trinity, the agent by which creation came into being, took on something that He did not have before. Now this is tricky theological land, but it's important land. There was never a time when the second person of the Trinity was not divine. Ever. But there was a time when the second person of the Trinity was not human. When we think about that from the standpoint of time and the linear movement of time. But there was a time when that was the case. The Word became flesh. Why did the Word become flesh? That's the question that Jeremiah 23 helps us ask with, I think, a little bit more um, clarity. Why did the second person of the Trinity become a man? Because the Old Testament with these lightning flashes tells us that we should not be surprised or we should at least be anticipating that God is setting up something in His future for the redemption of His people and the redemption of the world that I, that's going to blow our socks off. In Isaiah chapter 48 and 49 language, the prophet Isaiah says, those things which have been done before, forget them. Right? 
Because I'm about to do something so radically new in your midst that there's nothing that comes before it to prepare you. So what, what the Old Testament does really is it puts us on the edge of our seats saying, I, I, I have some material to work with here. The material is God is one, but there's also a plurality within that God. We see that in Jeremiah 23. We see that in, in, in a Proverbs chapter 8. There's a plurality there. And we also see that God's movement toward us in the future will be miraculous. It's going to blow our hair back and it's going to be linked to the throne of David. So we're waiting. And here John's gospel comes in and says, and that time of waiting is now, now. Now is the now time in that regard. The word has become flesh. John chapter 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only son who is in the bosom of the father, he has made him known. What a great verse for us to think about during the season of Advent. We all want God, don't we? I mean, I think people express this in very different ways, but we're all hungry and we're constituted, I believe, in our humanity to yearn for something more. And the desires that we have that build up in our lives for various material things, well, these desires build up into our lives oftentimes to witness to us that what we want is so much more than that. I don't know how you talk about this in your family. We don't do a good job of it at all. But I remember Christmas night depression as a kid, right? I listed all my things out. The anticipation's built up. Now there are. Played with it all afternoon. Christmas night comes. <sighs> right. Right. I see it in my boys, right? Christmas night depression. Well, there that goes, and we we'll have to wait again. Um, a philosopher, and I've mentioned this another, a philosopher by the name of Schopenhauer, um, he talks about this, that really that's the constitution of our lives. We're, 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 we are left in the vortex of really wanting things and being dissatisfied because we don't have them and then being bored when we'd have them. Right? We're just caught in that vortex. And here's St. Augustine, and I believe John's Gospel, where did the whole Bible step in and say, that's right. Because what this is yelling at you, that what's whispering to you from beyond here, the hey, psst, you part, is those desires that you have are all witnessing to the fact that your desires are infinite in nature. Only be met in the person and work of the Son. They're infinite in nature. God fills that infinite hole. So He's revealing to us who God is. Jesus is. He's telling us who the Father is. You want to know who God is? You want that big gaping hole in your life? filled and continuing to be filled, that's only done in the revelation by the Son to tell us, you want to know who God is? I'm going to tell you who God is. Look long and hard at me. You follow me closely. What I say, what I do, how I act, how I react, how I die, and how I rise again. Look at me closely, because then you'll see the Father. Last thing before we're done, and it's related to this, is in John's Gospel again, John 17. Um, there's, a, there's a sign out of Ar- in front of Arlington National Cemetery. Um, beautiful sign. I, I, I remember being taken by it as a sophomore in college, the first time I saw it. And it said, please have an attitude of respect and silence as you walk into these hallowed grounds. Something to that effect. And I was like, well, that's quite powerful. I feel like some, I feel like a sign should be put right before John 17 like this, right? Um, silence, reverence. This is this is sacred ground. 
I mean, all of John's Gospels building to the passion of Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's all moving toward that. And the climactic moment before we move into the passion narrative in John 18 is a whole long chapter where Jesus is doing nothing other than praying. I mean, the night before Jesus goes to the or begins his movement toward the cross, what we see is this high priestly prayer, Jesus praying. It's one of those moments when the curtain's pulled back and we're allowed to see the triune God communicating to Himself. The Son praying to the Father by the Spirit. It's, it's quite powerful. John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. That's true eternity. Um, but I wanted you to see this last verse. The final verse of the, of John 17, before Jesus moves into the Kidron Valley and then begins His movement toward the cross. I made known to them Thy name, and I will make it known that the love with which Thou hast loved Me may be in them and I in them. I've made known to them Your name. Do you ever read verses like this and just stop? And go, that's a bizarre turn of phrase. What do you mean you've made known to them your name? These were well-trained young men and women in the synagogue. They knew their Torah. They knew their prophets. They were read to them all the time. They knew all of this. They didn't know the name Yahweh. Even though they respected that name and wouldn't articulate it, they certainly knew what it looked like on the page. What do you mean that you're revealing to them your name? A similar thing, I believe, in substance happens in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, verse 2, where there Moses says, and the patriarchs only knew God as El Elyon, the Mighty One, but I'm revealing to you my name, Yahweh. That's another one of those verses where you go, Houston, we've got a problem. Because you go back into the Genesis narratives and you begin to read the patriarchs, and, well, who's talking to Abraham? Yahweh is. And he's identifying him. In other words, the patriarchs know the name Yahweh. So, and the disciples certainly know the name Yahweh. But what is this? What's the point of Exodus six two and John seventeen? The point is that the name is linked to God's character and His identity. The, the patriarchs didn't know the Exodus. They, they, may, they knew the name on paper, but they didn't know the fullness of the name. The significance of the name as you're going to know that name when I break Pharaoh's back and part open the Red Sea and move you through into a land that flows with milk and honey. You're going to know my name, my salvific name, in a way that they didn't know. Abraham didn't know this. And here Jesus is saying the night before the cross, you're going to, I'm going to let them know your name. I already have, but I'm going to do it even more. Why? Because the name is tied to God's redemptive activity and movement toward His people. It's who He is. He's revealing His own eternal triune decision to be a God for you and for me. And Jesus is saying the night before He dies, I'm going to reveal your name tomorrow. I'm going to let them know who you really are. So that when we come to manger and life and cross and tomb, when we see the full panoply of Jesus' life from beginning to end, what we're seeing is an elongated revelation of the very name of God. This is who He is. 
This is how we know who He is. He's a God that redeems and loves humanity in spite of the fact that humanity is resistant by nature. This is who our God is. Philippians chapter 2, and He handed over to Him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. What do we see in Philippians 2? We see John 17, 23 worked out as well. God's name His salvific identity is wrapped up now in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we cannot speak of the one without speaking of the other. And the logic of that is Trinitarian logic. Want to ask any questions? Fire anything off? Bueller? It's my one joke that I have with my my poor Hebrew students. You know, they're earning their way to heaven by having to learn Hebrew. And I'll I'll give them a quiz, and you know, five seconds into the quiz, I'm like, "Who needs more time?" Right? Um, <laughs> anybody need more time? Anything? All right. Yes, ma'am. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 52, and it's, I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up because that that text. Um, is another one of these Trinitarian whispers in the Old Testament. Because you have, in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet sees the Lord, Yahweh, high and lifted up. Rum venessa. Those are the Hebrew terms. In Isaiah chapter 2, Israel tries to raise and exalt themselves, and God cuts them down. That's their arrogance. So the terms raised and exalted in Isaiah's prophecy are only predicated on Yahweh. They're unique terms that are solely directed at Him alone. Whenever Israel tries to do that to themselves, it's an act of arrogance and they're, they're cut down. But then we come to the, that fourth servant song, the famous Good Friday reading, and it says, Behold my servant, he is um, high and greatly exalted. It's the same Hebrew collocation, Rum ven Nassah, that's predicated on this servant figure who's about to die and redeem and make many righteous, it, it, just, it just makes you pause and go, whoa, the whole book of Isaiah has been at pains to let us know that no one gets predicated with those terms except for Yahweh. And here we have this enigmatic servant figure who now emerges to redeem humanity and he's predicated with the same terms. That's a, it's an interesting thing, I think. So that's I, I want to talk about that a little bit. Bye. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yes, sir. The Jews in the Old Testament messed it up all the time, time after time. But then you use the term that God whispers to them. It doesn't surprise me that they messed it up because he didn't give them a very clear picture. Does the Bible give a reason why he was so obscure and so difficult to to read to to understand does it give you an explanation well that's a that's a big question um i mean there's a i mean there's a sense in which god's identity in the old testament does remain hidden but it remains hidden in its revealedness as well in other words the, the, these big events like the exodus and of the anointing of David. I mean, there's event after event after event where God reveals who He is and is at pains to let Israel know, I think with, with, pretty, with some strong clarity, who He is. 
Um, but at the same time, I take your point, and this is what Paul says, and it's, it's maybe not a happy verse. But Paul says that the history of Israel itself witnesses to the fact that God has shut up all humanity unto disobedience so that he can have mercy on them all. Romans chapter 10. Um, so there's a sense in which Israel plays a very important role, even in her rebellion, as the means by which God would expand his saving grace um, to, to the world. And that, that's, you know, but it's a very complex issue. Um, yeah. I think that's that's up in part. Yeah. Much more on that. Yeah. All right. Blessings. One, one more week. One more week.